All right. We're taking all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome. Good to be back here with everybody. Coming out every Tuesday here, Coach Bo with you, 8020 Baseball Podcast, 8020 Baseball Masterclass. In this week's episode, I'm going to share with you a strategy to help pick your pitchers, hopefully better. I think in many cases, this will help you pick your pitchers, select your pitchers, allocate those innings a little bit better. And I'll share that out in just a second. So the 8020 principle, the 8020 rule, if you're not familiar, you should go read that book, the 8020 principle by Richard Kosh. I have recommended that before. Obviously, this is the 8020 baseball podcast. I'm a huge fan of the 8020 principle. Something that I think uh, a lot of people, when they think of the 8020 principle, I think sometimes or often maybe, I'm not sure. Well, I feel like it's looked down upon in some ways because coaches or people in the world, they look at it like, oh, well, those those folks that subscribe to the 8020 principle, one, they think we're all in on it. That's all we care about. Two, they think that we subscribe to the exact number, the exact day, 20% of the things we do. There's 20% of the things we do that yield 80% of our results, our outcomes, our, our positive net, whatever. Of course, it's not a, an exact ratio and nobody who ever follows it or discusses it would ever say that. It's more of a range. It's more of a in the 20% range, in the 80% range type of ratio. And then there's, I do get this feedback from some coaches from time to time. They get a little worried that if you follow the 80-20 principle, the 80-20 rule, that you're not going to worry about the details, that you're just excluding the details. And this couldn't be further from the truth. The 80-20 principle does not say to not worry about the details, the things that only yield 1% of the result or will only help you in 1% of the games or 1% of a game or with 3% of your players or in 4% of whatever it is you're trying to do. In fact, we do believe in the details. We believe to practice and train and coach up heavily the details. And if you've listened to the last 124 episodes of this podcast, it's very clear we get into the details of the 20%. In other words, the 20% are the major actions, the major needle movers. The biggest two are hitting and pitching. Those are the two biggest. Why? Because they happen the most often. Every single pitch has a pitch and every single pitch, unless it's an intentional walk, which very rarely happens. Barry Bonds retired a long time ago. Every single pitch has a hitter in there that has to be ready either to swing or decide not to swing. And if in fact they are swinging, they got to put a good swing on it. Sometimes they got to check their swing. So there's a hitting action every single pitch. And that could be in a youth game. That could be 100 pitches for each side. That's 200 events. That's 200. So 100 for your pitchers, 100 for your hitters. How many ground balls are happening? How many fly balls are happening in each game? How many times are you getting in a rundown? How many bunts happen in a game? Ask yourself that. So what's more important? And you could say, well, but if a bunt happens and they throw it away, that's going to cost a run. You think you're not costing yourself a ton of runs if you squander and have a bad hitting approach for 100 pitches? Do you know how, how many more? runs you could score if you dialed in your hitting approach or you got your pitchers that better command 100 pitches a game, that's going to net you way more runs than having a solid first and third defense to a certain. I get the first and third can be problematic at the younger ages because the legs are always going to be ahead of the arms. That's the biggest problem with like youth baseball when it comes to base running. And and I get the idea of like not stealing because the arms and the catching and the throwing is not up to speed with, you know, no pun intended with the legs. Kids start running when they're two or three three 
and they excel. They can run full speed like at three or four. Can you imagine like trying to get baseball kids to throw the ball perfect and be able to chuck it really well at like three and four? Just doesn't happen on the most part. I know there's some kids that can, but for the most part, they're not doing that. The glove and the throw, the hand-eye coordination isn't there as fast as the running. But my point is the 80-20 principle is a guide. It's not a definite must do. The principle is just making sure that we are not ignoring the details. It's just about clearly understanding how to allocate our coaching time and our players' time, our practice time to more accurately reflect, to be more aligned with what is going to have the most impact on the game, on player development, on the development of the person of each player, on who they are as a person, on their career, and on the team's success. What it's doing is giving coaches, people in life, in any industry, even in families, you could use this with health. We could use this with nutrition, with exercise, with our relationships. Look at relationships. I bet 20% of your relationships bring you about 80% of your enjoyment. I bet about 80% of your relationships net about 20% of enjoyment. In other words, 20% of your friends and family yield most of the fun and enjoyment in those positive relationships that you have, right? And we could go on and on with these examples of the 80-20 rule. Again, it's not an exact science. It's not supposed to be exactly 20. It could be 90-10. It could be 70-30. But the idea is to have a paradigm that not all actions and inputs and things that we do are all going to yield the exact same result. They're not all going to have the exact same impact on our results. And results, I think sometimes gets a bad, has a bad connotation. I don't, I don't see results. I see results as a good thing. If you're having conversations with family or friends, you want to have a good result out of that, a good result. I don't look at the word result as a bad thing. I look at it as what are the results? And I think as a society, I've been up front with this on this podcast, we need to get more back into focusing and letting results guide our process rather than just getting lost in the process and not really ever seeing if it's taking us where we want to go and how's life turning out. In fact, I saw a book the other day. I got a, I got a recommendation. And I went and looked it up and I'm going to get it. It's essentially like the five main tips, strategies, recommendations from people that were in like, I think hospice care, basically they are dying and they did a bunch of research. This author did a bunch of research and said, what are the five main things you would tell somebody that's younger? And it's like, well, where does life result in? It results at the end of life. Start with the end in mind, like Stephen Covey's famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of those habits is begin with the end in mind. Well, we can't begin with the process in mind. And you hear this a lot in baseball. Ball, the process, the process. You hear it in sports, it's process, work the process, be process focused. I don't subscribe to that. I'm a huge process fan, huge, huge process fan. But I truly believe we need to start looking at results and letting them dictate where we're going much more than just relying on the process to take us to where we want to go. So I subscribe to getting the best result possible and then let the process take care and work the process into that to direct me. Sometimes, you know, we get attached to the process. There's a lot of coaches that are attached to the bunt. They're big on the small ball. I'm by Bipartisan. I'm not attached. I'm attached to scoring runs. I'm attached. I'm partisan to scoring runs. I want more runs for my team. I want them to score more runs. I don't say I want to be, I don't get attached to the process. And that's what happens when you hear these. And some of you right now, I'm talking to you. You're, I'm, you're a small ball coach. You're big on small ball. You're big on the bunt game. Great. Be careful getting attached to the process. You're getting attached to the process. You should only stay attached to the result, the goal that you want to achieve and find the best process 
to get you there because the process that we're using sometimes isn't the best process. So if we get attached to it, really hard to let go of it. It was like the general managers using batting average and things like that in RBIs to guide their decision-making process to bring in free agents. When Billy Bean said, I'm going to use a different process. I'm going to look at on-base percentage. I'm going to factor that in more heavily, not just on-base percentage, but factor that in more heavily, that and slugging percentage, things like that. At the end of the day, Billy Bean subscribed to scoring more runs on offense, not batting average or bunting or whatever it was, or stolen bases. He subscribed to scoring more runs. That would help guide his process. Same with these old people. Hey, you can listen to young people talk about, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Or you can listen to the people who either got the results or didn't get the results at the end of the day. And those are the older people at the end of the line that are sharing some really good feedback because everything they're sharing is based off of the result they got, not where they think their process is going to take them. But with the 80-20 rule, it, it helps shape the process by using the results. The 80-20 is strictly looking at what generates the results that we're getting, what actions, what inputs, what things are we doing, what things in baseball, what things can we practice to get better results? And I didn't think about this till not that long ago, maybe about six, seven years ago when I really got well-versed in the 80-20 principle. And I said, wait a second, this is huge across the board in every area. And I was already in the baseball coach and I said, wow, there's a huge competitive advantage just sitting here. This is a better way to live life. But geez, as a baseball coach, now you're not getting tied to the process. You're getting tied to the results and then and then working your process in to, to get you there. And I thought, wow, you're right. What is the goal here? It's to score more runs or to give up fewer runs. Okay, that's the only thing that we should subscribe to. Does everything impact at the same? And the first thing I did is I started digging into data to see how often certain plays in baseball even happen. And I looked at historical data in the major leagues, which isn't a lot different than youth baseball. I started looking at it and I said, wait a second, first basemen are getting one ground ball for like every eight throws that came their way from another infielder, from third base, from shortstop, from second base. So they were scooping, stretching, moving around the base, catching the ball coming from an infielder. They were catching eight of those or somewhere in that that ballpark. They were catching eight for every ground ball they were fielding. And then I went out to baseball practices and I watched baseball practices allocate ground balls to their first baseman equally to all their other infielders spots. And then I started breaking it down and go, well, shortstop, they get about 25% more. Second base, ironically, actually gets about the same as shortstop. And this is the major league. They went back and looked at like a thousand or I'm sorry, a couple million games or something like just massive data number. And I said, I started making, I started digging into this and I go, oh, so the key is to allocate, especially with youth baseball, our precious training time, but at every level, it's still finite. And then use our paradigm of making sure that what we're coaching and practicing and training lines up and has the biggest impact in the games. And it was an eye-opening experience for me. So that 80-20 rule, if you're not versed on that, I mean, it's a game changer for your business. Whatever business you're in, the 80-20 rule is just a paradigm. Of course, you know, you're not going to, everything is not exactly like, oh, uh, these 20% of things that we do here with my business or 80%, it's going to vary, right? And you may find that these three things that you do with your business or these three things that you do with your spouse or these two things that you do with your kids are the biggest thing. And this started really making me prioritize So I start prioritizing. We need to just put it together and say, what are the things that are going to yield us the best or get us the the most bang for our buck? And then we can work on the details from there. So you don't want to not pay attention to your first and third defense or your bunt defense or your rundown defense or your relays, things like that. You don't want to ignore it. You don't want to completely not cover it for the most part. If you have one practice a week, I'd probably not cover it. But if you have two practices a week and you can get out there and have a decent amount of practices throughout the season, I would allocate 
take just less time to be very efficient with it. Just give them a little bit of a sample, give them a quick instruction. Like if this happens, this is the goal. This is what we want to do. Have them rep through it a little bit and then move on and be okay. Not being perfect at those things that don't happen that often. The first and third one gets a little tricky because at the lower levels, it's just like putting a quarter in the merry-go-round sometimes. But, you know, at the end of the day, once players play enough, you get to, you know, high school baseball and things like that, that gets shut down at good varsity baseball and definitely above that, you know, just running rampant on the bases. It starts getting shut down a little bit better. And so we definitely subscribe to the details. We definitely don't discount anything that would happen in a game. We just make sure as an 80-20 baseball team is a philosophy is we make sure that we always ask ourselves how often does this happen in the game? How often does what we're training, this drill, this thing happen in the game? And then we allocate our time according, our practice and training time according, approximately according. It's like we're never going to know exactly how often it's going to happen. I don't think anybody's ever going to figure that precise number out because the variables change, the players, the pitcher, the weather, the team, the fields, you know, the matchups, the, you know, all that changes so much. There's so many dynamic to that that can vary. But at the end of the day, you pretty much know like pitching, like the command, teaching your pitchers to command the pitch, throw strikes, command multiple pitches, have an off-speed pitch or a change-up, things like that, stay healthy, stay durable, and then having a hitter up there every single pitch, having one a player in the box for your team every single pitch that's ready to hit with the best approach possible in a really good spot to do a lot of damage on a pitch that ends up in their hitting zone or with a really good chance of not swinging at a pitch that's out of their hitting zone or out of the strike zone or chasing pitches. That's going to add up to just a ton of runs over the course of a season. So we have to be okay with not being great at some of these little things and be really hyper-focused on those things that are going to be big deal, big difference makers on the scoreboard and with our players, team culture, et cetera. So to wrap that up, I, I remember for years and years and years studying, I would get you know this drill or this tactic or this technique shared with me from other coaches or I would listen at a conference or watch it on a video or read about it in a magazine or whatever. I would see it out at the field at a coaching clinic. And then I got taught some of these operating system things like the 80 20 principle. And that was massively more important and massively more useful across the board because it works across every, not just every facet of baseball with every team, every player, every situation, every season. It also works across all of life. Now, picking your pitchers, picking your pitchers. So a lot of coaches, and I made this mistake when I first started coaching, would look for the players with the best arm or a tall pitcher or whatever, or the pitcher that threw the or person that threw the hardest. And I would say, oh, well, that's the pitcher we want out there more often, or those are the pitchers that we want out there more often on the mound pitching for us. The first criteria for a pitcher is their desire to go and compete. Do they have a massive threshold to throwing in the towel? Are they going to fold like a cheap beach chair quickly? Or are they going to stand out there and compete? Are they going to compete each and every pitch? Being a competitor is the number one thing when it comes to pitching. The number one thing. Now, of course, it's not the only thing. But if we're doing the 80-20 principle, I'm putting it on, do they compete? So for example, I stopped asking pitchers, or I should say players, when I would start seasons. When I do go out and consult teams, I always go, how many of you have pitched before? That's a common question. A lot of kids raise their hand. How many of you like to pitch? You know, most of the kids keep their hands up. And then you say, all right, put your hands down. Now raise your hand if you want the ball or you feel you want the ball more than anybody out here in the last inning of the game with the bases loaded and a 3-0 count, the tying run at third base, and the best hitter for the other team is up to bat. How many of you want to be out there right then? Raise your hand and then watch how quick their hands come up. See, eventually they might 
might all kind of come up, right? They don't want to be the odd person out. But watch how quick. Keep track of who raised their hand with like, yeah, I want that. I want that. I want to be in that situation. Those are the pitchers. The pitchers are the, the players that want to be out there and compete. So I stopped asking how many of you like to pitch or who's got a good arm, yada, yada. I said, who wants to pitch? Who here wants to pitch? You know, who wants to be out there on the mound? Who wants to be out there on the mound when it's not going good? Raise your hand if you want to be out there on the mound when the other team's out there doing their cheers and the, the crowd is, you know, this, that, and it's and there's loud. Or, or even if it's just how many of you want to be out there in a tight situation in the crunch time? How many of you want to be out there when it's getting a little nerve wracking? Okay, that's the question. That's the type of pitcher you want to pick. So that's a paradigm. That is huge when it comes to 80-20. Pitchers that compete, that is massive. Pitchers that want to go out there and win will compete. They have to be competitors. I had a pitcher I coached years ago, really good arm, good delivery, smooth ball came out really good. He was a bigger than average player. He didn't really play any other spots. And so I think he's going to be a good pitcher. I discounted one part of his game, just competing. It wasn't as though he was a kind of, he didn't have a weak mindset. He it was just kind of like, yeah, it was either there. It was not, it was not super important to him whether he did great or not. You know, it wasn't each pitch was, hey, I'm going to try my best. It, it wasn't like, I'm going to get this guy out at all costs. I'm going to make a good pitch at all costs. Like I'm going to do, and what I mean all costs, like with all my focus, with all my intent, I'm doing my best. I'm focused. I'm dialed in. I want to do the best I can. And he just didn't have it. And after a couple of years of coaching him from the time he was a freshman, before he was a freshman in high school, all the way through it by his junior year it was pretty apparent that, uh, you know, he wasn't a gamer in that sense. And uh, he did end up having a pretty good career, went on to play college baseball and did all right. But the difference, the biggest difference between him him being a stud in terms of production, in terms of the results, winning a ton of games and just a really good, I mean, his ERA was, would be like two and a half or three when it probably could have been under two. It could have been one and a half. You know, at the high school level, you, you get some of those really good pitchers with one and a half ERAs. You don't see that as much as you get some DeGrom more type numbers more in the high school level and things like that. You don't get as much as you get older in college and stuff. But uh, nonetheless, that was a learning lesson for me years ago. Unless they want to compete, unless they're going to compete, you should probably look elsewhere. Now, some of you are like, coach, I don't have the luxury. I don't have enough pitchers. Okay. Well, make sure you allocate your games. If you're playing against a competitive team, that's when you save your more competitive pitcher. When you're playing against a team in a tight situation, or it's a tight situation in a game late in the game, maybe that's when you save your more competitive pitcher. Okay. So maybe you don't necessarily give out innings any differently. Maybe you allocate the innings evenly, but you just put those competitive pitchers, your uber competitive pitchers in certain spots that are better suited for them. All right. Don't put them in there for mop up duty. Don't put them in there necessarily to start the game unless it's against a really good team. That's always a good idea. So when you pick pitchers, you want pitchers that want to pitch. That's not always going to be the case in youth baseball because you have to divvy up the innings and things like that and pitch counts. Just think about that. Keep that as kind of an operating system mindset, a paradigm when it comes to utilizing your pitchers and getting the most out of them. Because at the end of the day, there are throwers, there are pitchers, and there are flat out gamers. Pitchers are good. Gamers are what you really want. Throwers, they should probably stay out in the outfield or in the infield, things like that, unless you're going to develop them over time. But this is something that typically pitchers and players have into, you know, it's kind of innate a little bit more, but you can definitely develop it. It's just something a little more innate. They're just a little more competitive nature. Doesn't mean you can't be good. I'm sure there's been major league pitchers that weren't uber competitive when they went out there. Now, some of them are not competitive at all once they get off the field, but once they go out there between the chalk lines, once they get on that mound, then they dial it and just keep that in mind. 
line, you want the pitcher that's going to go out there and compete because it's a lonely place out there on the mound. That's a lonely place. And you're all by yourself for the most part. I know you could say we have a defense behind you helping you, but you really, you're out there on a stage. You're out there right in front and center and it's mano a mano with the other team, with their batter, with their hitter. And uh, if you don't compete, it's not always a, a good spot to be if you're not a competitor, at least have some competitiveness. Doesn't mean just because you compete, you're going to dominate and win. But I'll tell you what, if you go out there, if a player or a pitcher goes out there apathetic, eh, they don't really care. They're not really interested or they're super nervous and they don't compete. They're super out of sorts mentally. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they have the best arm on your team. It doesn't matter. They're not going to be successful. So keep that in mind. And next week, I am going to share with you a strategy, a tip, a specific tip that will help your team play better on those rainy, wet days, those rainy, wet fields that, hey, in March, April, you get them. You're going to get them. Even in the best areas, Southern California, there was always a couple games every year. In Southern California, when it doesn't rain very much, there was always a few games every year where the field was wet, the grass was wet, or it was sprinkling or even raining. I'm going to share with you a specific tip to get your players better on this. And we'll get to that next week in episode 125. 125 next week, next Tuesday when it comes out. Until then, go to 8020baseball.com. Check that out. Go get your free drill design template, drill design guide. There's nothing free about the quality of it. I really do feel like this is just a really, really great. It's a no-brainer. You go over there. It should just be a no-brainer. You don't have to think about it. You just go over there. I'll send it to you. I personally will send it to you myself. The email will come from me. It won't be an automated email. It fires me up. It fires me up. I love when I see my inbox popping up with the request for that questions, people reaching out or getting those webinars or that team rules guy. That fires me up. That's why I'm here. I'm here for all of you. Love doing it. Until next week, take care of your health. Take care of your health so you can be an energetic, positive coach with your players. Take care of your families. Take care of your friends. Support everybody in your inner circle. Take care of them. And until next week, adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field. 